Well, it's good to be with you all. We really do appreciate your prayers for Galen. Um, I know Jerry uh, shares with you often about the association with the Free Church of America, and I can tell you that those who are working at that level, in particular as I've gotten to know Galen over this last year working with him, we really do care about the work of God's heart uh, in the church uh, and are just really, uh, you have a lot to be thankful for in that. Uh, You know, I really also look up to Jerry for a couple of reasons. Number one, I really like the way he combs his hair. Um, So I look up to him in that regard. And, uh, you know, being a pastor in Madison, it's very interesting. Now, you probably know that he was, he and Sue were in Stoughton for over 20 years at Lakeview Church. And uh, I wish I had a dollar for every time I've met uh, someone who's grown up in the area as a believer who was, wasn't, uh, who was impacted significantly by the ministry of Jerry and Sue. Time and time again, I've met people with that story. And so the Lord continues to honor their ministry. And you guys are really blessed to have such uh, great leaders uh, in ministry who are here helping build and grow this uh, new church. And so I hope you appreciate um, just the wealth and the heritage, spiritual heritage that they bring uh, to this community of faith. And so it's a privilege to be here with you. And it's a privilege to talk with you about something that's very near and dear to my heart. As Jerry mentioned, we helped, uh, actually came with a team of pastors to help plant the church there in Madison. And I'm thrilled uh, to see the vision of seeing church multiplication, of the planting of churches, be at the heart of what it is that we as churches are about. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that today, but we're going to be in Acts 19. Now, I was a little late in getting the slides uh, to you all here, so you're not going to be able to see that up on the screens. But if you have a Bible with you, you can open up and just camp out right there on Acts 19. There's a few different sections in that passage that we're going to be looking at today. And what we're going to see here is how the example of mission expansion happened in the early church, right? You know, Jesus died and rose again and then gave this commission to his followers to go to all the nations, preaching the gospel. And we saw an explosion of churches in the wake of that. And so we're going to see how, you know, one example of how that happened in Acts chapter 19. And ultimately, we're going to see not only how disciples were made, but how churches were planted, how God's work went forward in a dynamic way. Now, so in order to set the stage for this text, I want to just give you a few facts about how it is that the Christian movement spread in the early days of the church. Fact number one, the Christian movement was established and spread through Asia and the Middle East through the vehicle of disciple-making and church planting, the starting of new churches. Fact two, the Apostle Paul, a guy, if you've grown up in the church, you heard a lot about this guy. He was one of the greatest missionaries of all times. He was credited with a large part of the majority of the spread of the Christian movement in the early days. Fact number three, that Paul had a very simple pattern for how he saw the gospel infect the world. He would go and he'd make disciples, which means followers of Jesus. He'd share about Jesus. People would become followers of him. Then he would establish leadership in those communities that would emerge. And then what would he do? He would leave the city and go to another place and do the exact same thing over and over again. And in Paul's lifetime, this is fact number four, historians believe that he planted anywhere from 14 to 20 different churches. And that doesn't include those churches that went on to multiply themselves. 
And so this text, it gives us a glimpse, ultimately, of how Paul did this. And there are all sorts of implications for you and for me as we think about this. So I'm just going to pray for a moment and ask the Lord to speak through my words. So join me in that, and then we'll continue. Lord, we just ask, and I ask personally, that you help us to see your word, to see it clearly, Lord, that your spirit would come and speak to us, and that our hearts might align with your hearts, Lord, that that people who have already been tempted to turn off what it is that I'm to say today, Lord, that you'd awaken them to the fact that there is a deep and relevant message for every single life here today. Because your word doesn't return void. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the case today. So we ask you to help us in that process. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the term cause and effect, but this is something that even in elementary classrooms, they, they talk about this, that there's this cause and effect relationship in life. It's this simple concept that anything in life can be linked to both a cause, something that starts an event in motion, and then an effect, the end result of that motion. Uh, when dealing with teenagers, okay, I've got five kids and the oldest is 18, okay, and so when dealing with teenagers, we say, You know, actions lead to consequences. That's a cause and effect relationship. One of the most popular examples of this in popular culture can be seen in a a very uh, familiar advertising campaign. And we're going to roll this one example. If you have cable and can't find something good to watch, you get depressed. When you get depressed, you attend seminars. When you attend seminars, you feel like a winner. When you feel like a winner, you go to Vegas. When you go to Vegas, you lose everything. And when you lose everything, you sell your hair to a wig shop. Don't sell your hair to a wig shop. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. All right. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. So, uh, of course, I'm not here advocating a television service. But uh, but it does give you this amazing, you know, example that's very relevant and prominent in illustrating this cause and effect relationship that we live with in society. Now, what does it have to do with Acts 19? Well, it's because I think if you really want to understand Acts 19, you need to understand cause and effect. So what's the cause? We're going to talk about this. The cause is the gospel of Jesus, this good news about Jesus that he came, how it takes roots in the hearts of the people in Ephesus. And it leads to an effect. And the effect is this, that disciples are made, churches are planted, and the culture is changed. I read a a tweet yesterday by Pastor Tim Keller, and he said something very similar this way. He said, quote, Jesus never pulls you in without sending you out. So cause, Jesus pulls you in to himself as he changes your life. Effect, he sends you out. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let's look first at this cause relationship in Acts 19. We're going to read, I'm going to read the first seven verses you can follow along. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. 
On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So a little more detail about how Paul did ministry. When he would often go into cities, he he would go first to the synagogue where the Jews would worship, and he would preach to them. He would talk to them about the gospel of Jesus. Then he'd go to a public arena and, 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 and reach out to the Gentiles. And what would he teach? He'd teach this good news. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if this is all kind of new to you, that good news is quite simply this. Jesus came as God's son, lived a perfect life, died on the cross. Why? Taking upon himself the punishment we deserve for our sin. Why? So that all who would trust in him, all who would ask forgiveness of their sin, they'd have new life. And so this is the gospel that he would preach. Now, why was it that he started with the Jews? Well, because in one sense, they were low-hanging fruit. You know, if you go to an orchard and there's, you know, what's the easiest to eat from? It's that low-hanging fruit. Their history in, Ju- in, in, in the scriptures, it, it prepared them for this message of the gospel to take root in a powerful way. So now we see in verse 2 and 3, as Paul asks some disciples of Judaism, okay, these Jewish people, he asks them this, quote, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. So in, in John's baptism, they're referring to this Jewish leader who went from city to city, baptizing towards repentance, towards turning from sin. And so there were a lot of Jews throughout that day who'd been baptized by John the Baptist for the repentance, for the turning of sin. But he was also made it very clear as he went about his way that he was preparing the way for another. And so once it was clarified what this baptism represented in John and what was available through the gospel of Jesus, then what they do, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, verse 6, they received the promised Holy Spirit, and that was confirmed in this miraculous act of tongues and prophecy. And so long story short, here's what happened. The gospel became real to these Jews. They believed, and the Holy Spirit sealed that belief in them. Bottom line, 12 men go from being unbelievers to being spirit-empowered believers. So, based on Acts 19, 1 through 7, the cause that leads to the effect that we're going to be looking at in a moment is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed and that many believed. And when they believed, they became spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus. Now, a few years ago, and I think this was actually the conference I was at with Jerry, we uh, in Orlando got to hear Steve Addison speak. There's a book he wrote where what he did is he studied great movements that changed the world. And as he studied those movements, he found that the first characteristic that was common in all of those movements was a white-hot faith, meaning a really, really hot faith. And this is what he writes about that. Quote, passionate faith is at the heart of the movement. It is the greatest resource and often the only resource, and that when this radical life change is happening, 
people are more likely to believe that what they read in the Gospels is happening in their midst. They believe that the world of the apostles is a present reality. And Addison goes on to explain that it's in the wake of this life change, this intense Christian experience, where movements are rooted and grow and spread and ultimately change the world. Now, if that's the case, then what do we do with us? What do we do with today where it seems like, you know, God is working, he's doing this today, by the way, in radical ways, but sometimes, you know, in the States or where, you know, and in our experience, we may not feel in touch with that. Now, there's a lot of reasons that that might be the case, but, you know, and one of which is just God working, right? He works and sends his spirit and does great things, and sometimes he withholds, we don't understand. But there are also reasons in our own hearts, in our own experiences, as to why that doesn't happen. I want to just highlight a couple of them. See, the unfortunate pattern, in, in, even for the Christian's life, for those of you who call yourself Christians, you see, there's this point of change for many of us that, you know, if it wasn't as a little kid, we might have a story that's, that's more memorable. And it's this change that happens when we convert, when we say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And what do you hear? You're like, you hear the angels singing and, you know, crying, and it's like beautiful, and you're just like, yes, I've got this new faith. God's changed my heart. And we're super excited about that. But what happens as we begin to get back into the grind of living life? With time, we fall into these old patterns. We begin to think, well, my growth, it's just about checking boxes. It's just about doing this and that and just about being a good person. And we forget the awe and wonder of what it means to have new life, to know the grace of God in a powerful and wonderful way. And perhaps consumerism creeps in. Okay, this is the world in which we live, right? It's all about me. Do I, do I like the music? Was that too loud today? I don't know. You know, it might bother me, right? It might, it might bother me that the, you know, the kids' ministry isn't as perfect as I want it to be or this or that program. And we begin to shift out of the awe of God and the fact that he changes us and sends us out to change the world, and it becomes about our preferences, right? And something begins to change, And it's this cooling of the white passion that happens to us. And it should should send us to prayers like David's prayer in Psalm 51, where he asks God to restore the joy of his salvation. It was a cry for the awe of God that changed him at first, that it would be relevant, that he would never forget what it meant with tears when he once recognized his need for God, where God graciously changed him. Why is it that you think that the gospel is most powerful to new converts? Well, and, and why is it that they're often the most likely to share their faith? Well, it's for this, for this reason. So the question for you, first question is, how are you doing it living in awe of the God who saved you? Paul Tripp, he had this great quote in a book called Dangerous Calling, and here's what he said. Quote, the awe of God must dominate my ministry because one of the central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give people back their awe of God. A human being who is not living in a functional awe of God 
is a profoundly disadvantaged human being. He's off the rails, trying to propel the train of his life in a meadow, and he may not even know it. The spiritual danger here is that when awe of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. If you're not living for God, the only alternative is to live for yourself. So a central ministry of the church must be to do anything it can to be used of God to turn people back to the one thing for which they were created, to live a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. So how are you doing at living for the awe of God? Some of you need to fall to your knees. Uh, not this moment, but in, you know, later on today. You need to fall to your knees and you need to pray the prayer of David, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So we've seen in Acts 19, 1 through 7, this causal reality. The gospel of Jesus took root in the hearts of people and they were changed. And that change, that awe of a new life in them propelled them outward. And we're going to see three things that happened. Disciples made, churches planted, and the city changed. And we're just going to look at those in three different sections. First one, disciples were made. Let's look at verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastering all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now there's a ton that happens there, right? A lot of very interesting stuff that maybe leaves you scratching your head or think, man, I'd really like to see what was that, what was going on there. And of course we don't have time to dissect all of that. But to just give you a really quick overall framework, what you need to understand that's going on in Ephesus is that it's a city filled with spiritual, mystical things. The temple of the goddess Artemis was there. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Magic and spiritualism was to Ephesus as gambling is to Las Vegas, okay? So there was a strong association with these realities. And it's amidst of the, in the midst of this heightened spiritualism where God worked through Paul, hopefully you see this, in equally miraculous and spiritual ways. So God spoke in the language of the culture. He played them at their own game, right? He hit them where it hurts. And what did he do? He prevailed mightily. So what happened? 
the disciples were, disciples were made. Believers grew in faith, didn't they? They grew in the gospel. They grew in their love for the awe of God. In verse 18, and many of those who now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magical arts, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. So what's the point there? Well, it's not necessarily that you need to go home and delete your playlist on iTunes. Maybe you do, I don't know. But the point here is ultimately this. The gospel of Jesus became the hope of the people and it challenged what was important to them. Okay, we, call, we use a kind of a fancy word called idols in the Bible. We read about that. That's false gods, okay? There were these idols that were spiritual practices where they turned to the hope. Uh, so if you were depressed in that culture, what would you do? Well, you'd go to the temple for like a spell to be put over you, okay? If you wanted to have children but you were struggling, you'd go and you'd worship at the temple of Artemis and pray and ask the goddess for fertility. So once they became followers of Jesus, they just said, I don't need that stuff. It doesn't make sense. It's a, it's a false gospel. It's a false idol. And so burning their books was a way of putting that aside. So they grew in their love for Jesus. They turned away from those things which had mattered most to them. And this is what happened. Verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the effect of the gospel is what? Well, number one, disciples are made. People are turned away from false loves and towards true loves right, toward the true love and hope that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Number two, churches were planted. Now, you may ask yourself, and you'd be right in doing so, where is this talking about church planting? I don't see church planting mentioned here. Well, it's not directly stated. But we get the idea that this is happening in verse 10. First of all, quote, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we see this idea that Ephesus wasn't only, cha- only changed, but it just spread throughout the whole region. Okay, and another evidence that we have that church planting exploded in the wake of Paul's time there is that there's this book in the Bible, a letter called Ephesus. All right, the, I'm sorry, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And uh, anyone who knows some Bible history knows that that's what they call a circular letter. In other words, the letter of Ephesians, it was written and it went through the entire region to churches that filled that region. And what does this mean? It means that the work that God did through the church in Ephesus in two years of Paul's ministry there, it not only resulted in an individual church, but entire region filled with churches. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So in the historic pattern, what I talked about right at the beginning, of Paul's work and how he did ministry, the gospel changed hearts, disciples were made, and churches spread. But something else happened, and this is really a fascinating and kind of exciting thing to think about, and that is that the culture was changed culture was changed. We already saw a little evidence of that, but let me read this last section of a few verses, verses 23 through 27. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, 
you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So another thing to understand about Ephesus, it was, it was a port city, its economy was fragile. We see eventually the city goes away because the, the port fills in and ships can no longer easily access it. And so it was a port city that was dependent upon the economic, you know, spiritualist tourism culture that was associated with it. The house shrines, the idols, selling of those things, it was all part of the economy. So they were worried, right? Verse 26, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. So the result was gospel took heart, right? Took root in the hearts of people. They turned away from false gods of the culture. And what did it do? Bottom line, it crashed the economy of the city. And if you read on, you'd see that there were riots that occurred and, oh, it's crazy. Change the city. Now, you might be thinking, because uh, I think we're tempted to do this when we read Bible stories sometimes that are these historic accounts. We think, well, God just showed up and did something really amazing there, but it's a one-time incident. It's not really faithful to say that that kind of thing happens, you know, and can happen even today. Um, but I, I, was, I, I had a friend who read this book by Rodney Stark, and he was telling me about it. And Rodney Stark, he wrote a book. He, well, he's a sociologist at the University of Washington. And he wrote this book, The Rise of Christianity. And here's what he highlighted in verse 7. In essence, as a sociologist, he went back and he just looked at all these cultures and all these cities. And he studied them and saw what happened. And he did this study on the city of Antioch, and I thought it was really fascinating. So just another example I want to share with you of, of how it is the gospel changes city. You see, in that city, which was founded in the 4th century, it was built, I don't know if any of you remember the Berlin Wall, if you're old enough to remember that, I do, um, but it was a wall that separated East and West Germany, and it created a lot of division in that culture, where something very similar happened in, in the city of Antioch when it was built, there was a large wall that was constructed that separated the Syrians from the Greeks. Okay? So it was a divided city between Syrian and Greek. And it was divided by that wall. And then during the Roman years, it became increasingly divided in that there were 18 different ethnic groups in Antioch. And so it became a place that was known. I mean, we understand racial tension in our culture, don't we? Right? It's a very, very present reality. There it was explosive because all in one city were 18 races. And it was inclined to riots and all sorts of disunity. And I think it was a throne in the flesh of the Roman Empire. And so it was in the context of all of this division that Christianity was born. And as, as Stark studied the history, here's what he saw. He saw that as Jesus' church took root in the culture... That church grew from a small group of Jews to a multi-ethnic church that was comprised of Jews, Africans, Arabs, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Asians. 
So what happened? As the gospel took root in the hearts of people, a city racked with racial division and harsh racism saw emerge from within a community of faith where racial differences were set aside, where those who were once enemies were now friends. In stark sights, the Greco-Romans of that day stood in awe as they saw a people who once hated each other now loving one another in the name of Jesus. So the stories go on, don't they? Jesus unites. Jesus changes. If the bridge, you know, as if those of you, you know, visitors come in and they look at the bridge and they say, well, hey, it looks just like anywhere else in Eau Claire. You know, they might think, eh, why, why should I be a part of that? But if they come into the bridge and they see different cultures, different socioeconomic status, different educational levels, all coming together and loving in a new way, what happens? They see what it is that the gospel of Jesus can do. So with a view to application, what I want to do is reflect on this idea. Okay, the gospel enters. What does it do? It creates disciples, causes to plant churches, and it changes cities. Now, we have the opportunity, because you have good preaching, and I know you do, uh, you've heard many good sermons on why it is that Jesus and coming to him is such a life-changing, awesome reality. Hopefully, you're challenged, and I know you are, on a regular basis to live in awe of that. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, just based on this amazing, you know, world vision event that you had, you see how it is the gospel should change the city, Right? We do good things. Why? Because Jesus changed us. He pursued us. He loved us when we were unlovely. So what are we to do? We're to pursue others. We're to help change the city. But we don't hear a lot about this idea of the multiplication of churches. So I'm going to land the plane on this sermon, and I'm just going to interact really quickly with four different questions. Because if you're like me years ago, you're thinking, hey, church planning sounds great, but what does it have to do with me? Right? kind of a foreign thing. And so let me, just, let me just deconstruct and ultimately apply in the context of four questions. And the first one is this. Aren't our cities and counties already too saturated with good churches? Do we really need more churches? So I did a little research on Eau Claire, right, before coming here has a population of 66,000. And what we see is there's this average trend in American cities where uh, there's no cities or very few that have more than a 10% evangelical presence. And we know we'd consider that a reach city in some ways, in some metrics. But, but in, in terms of the raw numbers, that would mean that there are over 50,000 people around this room who don't have an evangelical witness, or at least they aren't a part of an evangelical church. Expand that to a Claire like Menominee, what do you have? Over 90,000 people not engaged in an evangelical community. So do we need more churches in regions surrounding...